one online source called it an epidemic. The opinion of the writer of this particular article explained that these kinds of incidents are too numerous to explain away as merely mental health problems. The police are even classifying this surge of vandalism and destruction as hate crimes. So what kind of behavior am I speaking of? What I'm talking about is the increasing number of incidents of desecration and vandalism to church buildings across America. Why would someone take something that is so sacred, so peaceful, so helpful in so many ways to so many different people, and develop such a strategy of destruction that they would be willing to risk jail time just to damage a church building. I just thought to myself, what is wrong with people? This is the meeting house for the worship of Almighty God. And people evidently have no fear of the Lord at all. Paul turned to the Corinthian church and he accused them of an even greater sin than that of burning a church building. What was the issue that led to such a pointed language from the apostle? He is urging the Corinthians toward a pure life here and he gives commands and he gives reasons why we should pursue holiness as Christians. And so I'm going to call the sermon Habitat for Divinity. And so you have your Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we'll just get verses 18 through 20. And I want to talk about this pushing toward a life of holiness. And if you remember, uh, we've been talking about the folks living in Corinth, that all kinds of debauchery were just normal everyday things. And if you think about our own world, our own country right now, and think about your own life, you realize that you have had to grow accustomed to some things that just a few years ago you would not have been able to tolerate at all. We live in a culture now that is godless. And so one of the greatest epidemics of our time is the fatherlessness of our families, The reason for that is that men no longer want to model the fatherhood of God for their own families. And so we have an epidemic there that's going on as men in our culture chase everything else but the commands of the Lord. And so we have, because of the debauchery of that particular area of the world, there's a lot that Paul has to work on and deal with with this church. And so let's take a look. At verse 18, first of all, and we're talking about Paul telling them to live a pure and holy life. So first of all, our action, the action that's required, our action and purity. Verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. There's a command that is given here. And then he goes on to say, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Guys, it's Father's Day. Welcome. You, you know, you know, you weren't getting something easy today. It ain't happening, right? We, I used to always make fun, you know, Mother's Day. Mother's Day for a pastor is like the day of, you know, fear and trepidation. 
It's the one day of the year, Mother's Day, when you feel like you literally do, like the priest going into the Holy of Holies with the rope around his ankle, knowing he's probably going to die in there. And so Mother's Day is like that for pastors. You're like, I'm probably going to mess up the sermon. I'm going to say something wrong. And it's good that women are going to be offended forever. Father's Day is the opposite. You just bring the guys out and beat them up. You know, so hopefully, fellas, not just the men and not just the young men, but also our ladies. This is uh, it's meant for all of us. So let's take a look. Our action purity. So he tells us to apply this perpetual command. And the command is very clear that you can see it in the scriptures. Flee from sexual immorality. Now, the word flee is is the present it's in the present imperative and so what that means is that keep on running away from sexual immorality you know most of the time we think about spiritual warfare and we are given these commands like stand you know and all this stuff you know and having girded yourself stand and so as men you know you can ephesians 6 you can that you really get a hold of that scripture like yeah man i want to be a warrior for jesus but i remember when my son was uh, involved in karate and, and is moving up the, the belt system there, and his, the sensei said, now, what is the best move that you can make for self-defense? And all the class was going, this, this move, that. He said, no, run. And so guys and, and ladies as well, there are just some sins you just have to run from. You, you know, we talk about fighting sin. Sometimes your best move or the most of the time your best move is just flee. Flee from sexual immorality, run from it. Now, the word sexual immorality, it's the word from which, it's a Greek word from which we get pornography. And so this covers every kind of sin. Okay, this is not just adultery. This is, not, this is every kind. And so this is a broad general word. And the conclusion that we can draw from this is Paul is talking about every kind, all kinds of sexual deviation according to the biblical standard. Now, let's just be practical about this. All right, my teenagers, y'all with me? One of the most dangerous tools in our world today is the cell phone. Now, parents, you're going to have to figure out how to navigate that. I mean, you can keep one from your child, and then when they get 18, they won't know how to handle it. And so you can do it that way. I, you know, it's, it's up to you. At least they'll be out of your house. You won't have to worry about it, right? But it's a dang- why, why is it so dangerous? Because anything and everything is instantly accessible. Now, parents, there are filters that you can put on there, and you'll know what sites your kids are on, by the way. So don't be willfully ignorant. I, I don't want to deal with it either, right? I, I remember our kids, you know, sometimes, and, uh, you know, they do something. You know, the best thing you can do, like when they get to be teenagers, is impound their cell phone. It drives them nuts. If you won't change in a hurry, if you won't, you know, they don't really repent, but at least they're sorry, right? So, you know, but the, the, it's, it's a dangerous tool. Now, d- don't, you, you can't go, well, it's evil. It's not evil. It's a piece of machinery. Okay, so if you're going to go that route, you'd be the same kind of people that think guns are evil. Guns are not evil. It's a piece of machinery. The, a gun doesn't have a soul. Neither does a cell phone. So it's not, the, it's the tool. The problem is... Whose hand it's in. That's, that's the problem. And it's not just men that are viewing online immorality anymore either. The number and the rate of, of women viewing this stuff is, is also going up. I, I'm not here. I'm not talking down to you. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to help you. 
Okay, so I want you to hear this. This is an urgent matter, but I'm trying to help you. This is not Baptist preacher condemn people day. That's, that's not it. I, I don't preach that way. I know sometimes you get, it hurts your feelings when, you know, I, I touch on your favorite sin. I know it hurts your feelings, and I really don't care either, you know, by the way, because, you know, the first step of repentance is get your feelings hurt. That, that's just how it goes. And I'm thinking, I'm hoping for change. If you get all mad about it, I'm like, hey, maybe change could be coming. Who knows? The worst, uh, the most dangerous uh, kind of hearer is the one that just is sitting there in a coma. So that's, those are hard. So why is this so dangerous? And, and here's the issue. I was trying to think through this carefully. Why, why is this so dangerous? Well, it, it, first of all, it, it's wrong because Jesus said it's wrong. So therefore, he says it's wrong. It must be dangerous. So the first, has Jesus ever said something's wrong and, and he was mistaken? I mean, he's not mistaken. Because here's what he's talking about. You say, well, there were no cell phones in Jesus' day. It doesn't matter. The issue has always been the same. The issue is to take the gift of imagination that God has intended for his glory and to take that gift of imagination and employ it for immorality. That's why it's so dangerous and so wrong. Jesus said everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The word look doesn't mean that you see. That, that's not what it means. It means to look intently with a goal of, and I'm sorry kids are in here, but they're hearing it at school anyway. It's to look intently at her with the goal of imagining having sex with her or him. It's taking the gift of imagination. Do you know dogs don't imagine anything? I mean, it's impossible that you could ever have a, a, a gorilla write the song I could only imagine. Animals don't imagine anything. They don't, they, they don't have that capacity. Why? Because that is a spiritual gift. It's a spiritual ability of the soul to imagine. And to take this ability that has been given by God only to humans and to use it against God is the worst kind of sin. And also, you know, ladies, don't entice men. Don't be complicit in the crime. But why is this such a bad, dangerous thing, though? I've, I've, I've established that, according to Jesus, this is wrong, but... Why is this so bad? You, you, you're just taking your cell phone and you're just, you know, looking at other people and, and all of that. And you're not hurting anybody, right? So why is it so bad? And here's why it's so bad. Because this kind of behavior creates idolatry in your heart. It is to look for something outside biblical permission for your own satisfaction, your own delight, to use your own imagination, and a whole host of other things. And let me tell you something about idolatry. Idolatry is an addiction. Idolatry takes your heart away. Idolatry is the kind of sin that entangles you and you can't get away. It reminds me of that silly illustration where a guy had a poisonous snake in his backpack. And so he was hiking up the mountains and it got colder and colder and the snake got cold. And then he thought, man, it'd be safe to get that thing out of my backpack. And so the snake is almost frozen stiff 
And so the guy gets this snake out. And the snake says to the guy, please warm me up. I'm cold. And so the guy decides, you know, it be, wouldn't be compassionate to let this snake just freeze death. I'll warm him up. So he warms the snake up a little bit. The snake bites him and kills the guy. Who in their right mind would do that? But we do that with sin. We, we, think, we think we can delve into sin a little bit and then jump out. And Satan lets you do that for a while. Why? So that you'll jump in and out a little more often. And then the next thing you know, the sin has entangled you and you can't get away. That's what idolatry does. It causes you to become a worshiper. You're willing to give away all of your life. You're willing to give away your heart. You're willing to give away your mind. You're willing to give away your soul in order to please this idol, the idol of sexual immorality. That's why it's so dangerous. If you as a parent, if your kid was watching Satanism on their phone, you'd be like, oh, you'd be losing your mind. This is Satanism. It is satanic worship. It's to take that which God has given as a gift and to twist it and to misuse it for your own glory and your own satisfaction. This command, this is why the command has to be applied. Keep on, make it a lifestyle, guys, to flee from sexual immorality. Then avoid the personal consequences. And this is some strange stuff here, but here are the consequences. And we're still in verse 18, so stay with me in the scriptures. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. What in the world does that mean? What this means is this, is to take the human body and, and nothing else, the human body, use the human body to sin, and it's that very sin that destroys the human body. It's like pulling your leg off and beating yourself in the head with it. What, what, is the, what are you doing here? And so this kind of sin is you sinning against yourself. Now, it doesn't mean that we know that ultimately every sin is against God. Every sin is against God. We know that ultimately. And primarily, it's against God. We know that. And we know this kind of sin also affects other people. But this is a sin that if, look, if I go rob a bank, it really, unless I get shot, doesn't hurt me. I just took everybody else's money. Right? If I do, it doesn't, it doesn't hurt hurt me you know it's hurting other people if I'm dishonoring my parents it it's nothing to me it's hurting them right but this is like you sinning against yourself you're doing it to yourself it's the weirdest thing why would we do something like that why would we if somebody said here I want you to take some of this poison we go no no thanks I don't want that but this is the kind of sin that poisons your own body this is something we need to get into our heads. And this concept and this truth and this reality has been stolen from us by some really bad teaching for a long period of time. You know, the one, one of the things I, I, I really like, there are a lot of values out of Appalachian culture. I grew up in it that I, I'm, I'm thankful for. But I'll tell you one thing I'm not thankful for is the sorry, terrible theology that has come out of that culture. It's a mixture of, I, I don't know, maybe some 
Irish-German superstition along with, you know, the beliefs of the Darlins on Andy Griffith plus a little bit of this, that, and a little Jesus mixed in. You're like, I don't even know what this means. But here's what's always said. And you hear this at funerals. You know, he's not really there. That's just a shell. The real person is gone. That's what we say all the time. Now, there is some truth to that. That's not totally wrong. But the conclusion that we draw from that is simply this. The body really doesn't matter. We're like a bunch of Gnostics. The body really doesn't matter just as long as the soul is protected. So therefore, with that philosophy in mind, what we do is we come to church and worship, but we do whatever we want to with our bodies because it's just our bodies. Because they're not really spiritual. See, there's the spiritual and then there's the physical. Those are totally different things. That's our thinking. The problem with that kind of thinking is that it is not biblical. The Bible tells us that there is an intricate connection between your body and your soul. There is an intricate connection. What you do with your body will affect your soul. Let me give you one example. How would the soul hear anything if you didn't have physical ears? How would the soul be able to take in the word of God if you didn't have eyes to see and read? There is an intricate connection. And not only that, we see in the Bible that if we do something to damage our soul, it actually affects our body. You ever been sleepless because of sin? It affects your body. Remember David talked about, I was, when I wouldn't confess my sin, he had the bone hurt. Remember that? He said, my bones hurt within me. I was just sick as a person. Why? why? What, what happens there? There's a connection between the soul and the body. If this were not true, what is the point of the resurrection? You see, you're not just being saved in your inward soul. Your body is also being saved. I bet you've never heard that before. If that's not true, then what is the point of the resurrection? What is the point of 1 Corinthians 15? Why? And by the way, when Jesus comes again and the soul is reunited to the body, if the body really doesn't matter, then any old body would do. It doesn't even have to be yours. Just get a soul and get a body and bam, put them together. But it's going to be your body. It's going to be elements coming from your body by which your new body is formed. We are not meant to be a disembodied spirit that floats around for eternity on a cloud somewhere. And so this is why Paul prayed. Because of the connection between body and soul. When he prayed for the Thessalonians, he prayed this way. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. What did he mean by that? He goes on to say, may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the point. Here's, here's what I'm trying to get you to grasp. You and I cannot do things with our bodies and expect it to not affect our souls. This is what the Bible is teaching here. And so when you take your body, your eyes, 
and you use them and your ears and you use them, your hands, you use them for immorality. Don't think that's just a bodily thing. It's a spiritual thing. And it does affect your soul. I just encourage you to understand that Paul is pleading with these people. You have got to separate yourself from these practices. I know you've done this stuff all your life. You grew up this way. But you've got to separate yourself from these practices. You need to take action for your own purity's sake. Now, he's, he's going to develop this a little bit further. This is not just about giving you a moral code to follow. It's more than that. He goes on and talks about our habitation and purity. Look in, in verse 19, in the first half of 19. Or do you not know? I don't know how many times he says, or do you not know? The, the Corinthians thought they were so wise. And he's like, y'all don't know nothing, man. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? He goes on here further to say, this is not just about moralizing you. There's a reason why you should practice purity and flee from sexual immorality and one of those reasons is because the holy spirit of god lives within you the identification of the temple your body is a temple it says your body is a temple now the word temple here refers to the temple proper not just the the temple uh, mountain there but the temple itself and even the inner sanctuary of the temple and we all know, as I just alluded to from the Old Testament, that if a defiled priest went into that inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, without purification and with sin in his life, God struck him dead on the spot. And that's why they had little bells on their, on their robe and everything. So, that you know, they'd go in there and you could hear it kind of jingling. And they had a rope tied on his leg. And if it stopped jingling, they'd, just, they'd drag him out of there. I mean, you can't go in and get him or you get fried. And so this is the inner sanctuary of which God speaks. The temple and its inner sanctuary. Some of you have, have, have developed such a theology that it's, so, it's a dichotomy between two dispensations or more. And do you not know that the temple was never designed to save anyone? Do you not know that all the sacrifices on the altars, they were never designed to save anyone? Did you know that God is not encapsulated in the Holy of Holies? Do you not know that? Do you not understand all of the details of all of that? What it's all about? It's the picture of the Christian life. It is the temple is not meant to be a sacred place where you go and get a little bit of spiritual mojo. It's designed to show you by outward illustration what your life is as a follower of Christ. And you have a holy of holies. Inside of you is the very presence of the glory of God. You are a temple. Now some people have taken this. You even hear it used in a secular way. Well you got to take care of the temple. And you know they're going to go in. You know hit a few more reps. Got to take care of the temple. And, and so they don't know the rest of the verse. Don't know anything about what they're saying. They've just kind of taken that as a motto. You know go to take care of the temple. And so, you know, okay, fine. You know, it's kind of like they also, the Christians have this one. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so, you know, take the verse out of context. Let's do that. But this is, this is not a motto for going to the gym. 
This is talking about spiritual fitness. Your body is a temple. It is the inner sanctuary. And we see who it is who occupies that temple. The Holy Spirit. It's the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. When I was pastoring a church in Knoxville. Hey, by the way, I'm going to preach a sermon uh, before I get out of here. Like how not to be a bad example. And what I mean by that is. Do your best. Don't be a bad example and become a sermon illustration the next time I preach. All right. So just don't. All right. Don't do it. <laughs> now you're like, I, oh. don't worry. I'd never call your name. I just give them your number. Um, I wouldn't do that. No, don't worry. This, that's not true. But I, I was I was pastoring this church in, in Knoxville and the guy that was chairman of deacons and it just it was like it's like having the godfather as your you know deacon chairman, you know. He knew everybody and all the stuff. But anyway, he said that he told me he was, uh, you know, a lot of people, East Tennesseans, you know, heavy smokers and so on. And he said, you know, he was like a lot of deacons back in those days. You know, you, they, they smoked. I mean, you could always tell how many deacons were there. You, at the front of the church there, you look at them cigarette butts divided by five. And that's how many deacons you got there. So, you know, they smokers. And he said that the pastor was preaching or a revivalist or something was preaching this section of scripture. Do you not know? That your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. And he said he had never considered it before. But he began to think on that. And just said to the Lord. Lord if the Holy Spirit is in me. And I keep on smoking. I'm just making a smokehouse out of your temple. And he said at that moment he just reached up in, in his shirt. And grabbed a hold of his Marlboros. And just squashed them and broke them in his pocket. And never smoked again. Now this is not a sermon on don't smoke. But we do have to consider this. Whether it's food. Whether it's drink. Whether it's entertainment or whatever. We do have to consider the fact. That our bodies have been given for a purpose. And we don't want to destroy that purpose. Shall we take our bodies. And then subject the Holy Spirit of God. To the presence of immorality. Shall we do that? No. One of the reasons that we must pursue this command is because our bodies will be a habitation or is a habitation for the Spirit of God. Now, finally this, just to give further weight to this command, you'll notice that Paul gives a command and then he gives the spiritual and biblical reasons to follow that command. See, the motivation in the Christian life is not, I just want to be a better person. That's not the motivation. The motivation is always a biblical and spiritual one. It's because in some shape, form, or fashion, this has something to do with our Lord Jesus. And because we love him, therefore we want to obey the command because this is what pleases him. Our motivation is... That we love him. That, that's our motivation. You know, if you're, if you're not a Christian, just go be immoral. What, what difference does it make? I mean, really. I mean, maybe you could have a motivation for a better society or something like that, I guess. I, I don't know. Maybe common grace would work there, I, I guess. But our, our motivation is not to be better. Our motivation is not to, you know, quit being so immoral or anything. Like that. Our motivation is totally different. One... The Holy Spirit of God lives in us. And then secondly, there's a further reason and motivation. 
And it, this is the relationship between our redemption, our redemption and purity. In verse 19 and, and then 20, at the end of verse 19, I didn't finish the verse because it's kind of mid-sentence. So at the end of, of verse 19, it says, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Our redemption here in purity. Now look, the price he paid for your body. This is what I was getting at a minute ago. He's saving your body as well. Not just your inner man. He's also saving your body. He paid. Otherwise, this argument makes no sense. You're not your own. What? Then it makes no sense. But, but he's going to make the case here that it does matter. And that there's the spiritual element to your body. Your body's not just a throwaway piece of trash. What does he say? The price that he paid for your body. You are not your own for you were bought with a price. The reason that we must not live like pagans is because we were bought by Jesus at the cost of his own blood. Now, this is one of the things I I don't know how that if our theology is that Jesus shed his blood for every single individual person on the planet for all times everywhere... How can you make that case? This, Paul's not arguing that the pagans ought to stop doing it because Jesus bought them with his blood. He's talking about the elector. He's talking about the followers of Jesus. And he's bought you. We know for a fact that he bought you with his blood. I'm just one of those people that thinks that, you know, weird as it may sound, that not one drop of the blood of Jesus was wasted. That it saved every single person he will intend to save and has intended to save. There's none of it going to be raked over the ground by pagans and say, ah, we don't want that. That's not going to happen. His sacrifice is effective. It, it, it works. It, it just works. So everyone that will be saved will be saved. Just, his blood is not spilled for those who are going to reject him. So he bought us with his own blood. And here the picture is, this, this, it's a picture of redemption and the word that he bought with a price. And the picture here, the word is a word that was used in a slave market. And, and this is somebody going in and there's a slave in there and he purchases that slave for himself. Now, the price that was paid is the price of the most valuable commodity in the history of the world. He didn't redeem us with silver and gold. But we've been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot or blemish. What should move us and motivate us to change What should motivate a young person to submit to their parents in this matter and allow their parents to monitor them and not try to, you know, sneak around and trick around or look on other person's phones so they won't get caught and stuff like that. What, what should motivate that person? It is, if if you're a young person, if you're here and you're a teenager, you're a college student and you claim to know Jesus, this is not about fear of your parents anymore. This is about the fact that you value the blood of Jesus. If that won't move you, there are enough weapons available to mankind to change you. Jesus enters into the 
market and he frees the enslaved ones. The ones enslaved to sin. Now, when we we talk about liberty now, Jesus doesn't save us so that then we can live for ourselves. Being redeemed doesn't mean now you get to go live life how you want to live it. What's spoken of here is we realize that we are now owned by another. That's what happens in salvation. Salvation is not you being released on your own recognizance. (laughs) It is about you being released from one cruel master. And now being under the control of the master who is meek and lowly in heart. So that you can find rest for your souls. The price. What was the purpose? Then, then what's the purpose here about redemption? What, what's the goal? What's the end game? So glorify God in your body. That's the end game. That's the point. So you see this is. You know this is sealed up uh, in, in an envelope here. The first line is flee from sexual immorality. He gives all the reasons and arguments. And now at the end. So glorify God in your body. In the Greek language, we call it an inclusio. Isn't that nifty sounding? Well, the result is use your body to make God look good. If I can put it that way. This is what he's saying. Use your body to make others have a good opinion of God. Too often, we worry about whether or not our bodies look good to others. Rather than... Whether or not our bodies make God look good to others. So what do you do with this? Well, one, you could uh, look for a different church where they don't preach the Bible if it hurts your feelings too bad. Uh, many have taken that choice. Um, you know, I'm, I'm entering in my last days here. Uh, you know, everything's a last for me now, right? It's a last with you guys, but I want you to understand, uh, you know, most of the time when people have a complaint against the preacher, they really are not really groovy with being under conviction. That's really the problem. So, you know, I, I, I've never done anything perfectly, never claimed to. That's, that's not it at all. But I, I'm sorry. You know, you, you, we all have to face the Lord and wouldn't you rather face him now like this than to stand before him and, and, and not have him address the issue in your life? So let's address it. So what do you do? Repent. Okay, what does repent mean? Okay, so we can give the technical definition that it means to turn away. That doesn't help a whole lot. I mean, you get the concept. But repent means you're going to have to make some radical changes. What did Jesus say? When he talked about lust, what did he say? If your right eye offends you, pluck it out. If your right hand offends you, cut it off and cast it from you. Now, is Jesus talking about physical mutilation would be the way to holiness? No, he's not talking about that. But he's using this as such a startling illustration to say to us, do whatever you have to do. Make whatever change you have to make. Because this is dangerous for your soul. There is no support group 
that's going to cause you to overcome sin. Support groups get together and remind you of where you're stuck. Hi, uh, my name is Tim and I'm hooked on sin. Uh, What? No, you're not. My name is Tim. And I'm a child of God. And I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And we are more than conquerors through him who loved us and gave himself for us. That's what we are. Repentance is just returning to who you are and stop doing what you're doing. You say, I've tried. I I can't do it. You need to be discipled. You know discipleship, you know what it means? Discipline. You know, you guys, you know, jumped into Finally Alive with John Piper. You had no idea what I was doing, you people. And so you jumped in that thing. And one of the things I got from you like the first couple of weeks was, this is so hard. It takes up so much of my time. I'm having to spend three hours a week on this. (laughs) You know what the problem is? You're having to give up something frivolous in order to give something to the eternal. And your flesh was going, ah, I'm going out of my mind here. That's what's going on. That's what's happening. What are you learning to do? Be disciplined. Disciplined in the things of God. Discipline of your mind. Discipline of your body. You're learning to be disciplined. No support group can do that for you. And by the way, if you believe in the Big Bang Theory, then pray to the Big Bang and see how that goes. There's no help there either. What, is, what, what do we have to do? We need, we need wholehearted following of Jesus without compromise. That's what causes you to overcome sin. Any sin, every sin, is that. If you're going to flee something, where are you going to run to is the question. If you're going to flee something, if you're going to run from something, where are you going to run to? Jesus says, run to me. Come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. See, the yoke of sin is heavy. The yoke of sin is ugly. The yoke of sin is damaging. The yoke of sin will cut you. The yoke of sin will hurt you. The yoke of sin will damage you. The yoke of sin will take you into slavery to sin. But Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. The reason, men, the reason that you must flee sexual immorality is because there is no rest for your souls there. You must flee it and you must continually run to Jesus. And there you will find rest for your souls. Well, let's pray together. Lord, I pray that in the name of Jesus that you would help our men to lead. Father, you know the failings and sins of all of the men here, each one of us. You know, Lord, how weak we are. You know how flawed we are. You know how disobedient we can be. You see it. You know it in our hearts. You know how quickly we turn to idols. You Know how quickly we turn to other things 
to find our sense of fulfillment and satisfaction. Lord, you know these things. And yet your call still goes out to your children. And you still say to us over and over again, flee from that and run to me. Flee from that and run to me. Lord, no one's ever been hurt by coming to Jesus. I pray, Father, that you would help, especially the dads here today, to resurrender their hearts to you first and foremost, and then to their families. God, may they not pursue purity for the sake of being a better husband. But may they pursue it because Jesus paid the price for them. Lord, I pray that the family would not be their primary concern. I pray that a relationship with Jesus and honoring him would be their primary concern. Lord, everything else in life orders The chaos stops when Christ is ruling. And I pray, Lord, you would work that in the lives of our men today. Lord, every person here knows someone or perhaps they themselves are ensnared by sin. Like a spider's web, they've struggled and struggled and fought to get out. They didn't think it would keep them that long. They thought it would be an easy exit, just like it was an easy entrance. And now they find themselves ensnared and entangled. Lord, I pray today that they would hear the call of your voice. The call not of condemnation, but the call of love. And they hear you say, come to me. Just come to me. Lord, I pray for those who are not followers of Jesus today or those who have started following Jesus and need to make a public announcement about that to show that they are following Christ. I I pray you'd give them courage of heart. Help them not to shrink back now. Help them not to fade, Lord, but God, that they would pursue Jesus wholeheartedly today. So do that work, Lord, in us by the Holy Spirit's power and work. And by that, we will give you the praise and glory and honor for doing in us what we cannot do for ourselves. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.